This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator, where each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode, we look ahead to Harry and Meghan's UK tour, ask whether trustonomics can tackle the cost of living, and discuss whether successful writers can be friends with less successful ones. First up, for the cover of the magazine this week, Freddie Gray has written about Harry and Meghan, who are back with a vengeance. Freddie joins us now, along with Tanya Gold. Freddie, what should we expect from the Sussexes' upcoming UK tour? Well, the last couple of weeks have have given us perhaps a flavour of what's to come. Uh, Meghan seems to be sort of directing the, the, the Sussex show now. She launched this podcast last week. The first episode was with Serena Williams. The episode this week was with Mariah Carey, and it's called Archetypes. It is, uh, if you're a bit like me, horrendous to listen to. It's really, really boring. It's unbelievably cloying, self-pitying, pretends to be talking about archetypes, but it's actually talking about stereotypes. And it's talking about, really, the first episode was how Megan was victimised. The second episode was really about the word diva, but it actually ended up being a fair bit about how Megan is victimised. And so it's become her sort of her sort of pity tour. She is coming over with Harry next week. On their first thing they will do is go to a young one young world summit in Manchester where Meghan will give the keynote speech, not Harry, Meghan. And then they will go to Dusseldorf, which will be Harry's moment to shine because they'll be doing a ceremony for the Invictus Games, which is the, the sporting competition that Harry organised for disabled veterans, injured veterans. And then they'll be coming back to London, we think, for a well-child event, which is a bit more of a Harry thing because I think he's very involved with that charity. So it looks on paper as it could be quite some. They could be behaving like normal royals, but if you talk to people who are royal insiders, should we call them? They are concerned about what's going on. They think Harry is sort of slightly out of the picture at the moment, and Meghan seems to be ramping up a kind of 12-week war, because there's going to be 12 episodes of this podcast, one every week, against the Windsors. And the biggest evidence of this, sorry, this rather long-winded answer, was this amazingly long and weird piece in The Cut, which is part of New York magazine, which was a profile interview of Meghan, which was bonkers journalism. I mean, really very, very strange quotes from her, bits where she was telling the interviewer to describe the noises she was making and so on. And really sort of, I'm not sure whether the author did it on purpose or not, but sort of revealed a a slightly mad person and a person who is determined to get revenge on the royal family and can't even see quite how psychotically she's behaving. Tanya, not so long ago, after the famous interview with Oprah, in fact, you wrote a piece for The Spectator in defence of Meghan. Do you still feel the same way? And do you think Freddie perhaps is being unfair to her here? Well, I don't like a pylon. I, I wrote in defence of, of Meghan and Harry after the Oprah interview because I felt very sorry for them, particularly for him. I'm not a monarchist and I'm very much one of the people who thinks that to let people be royal is sadism. 
And we all know what happened to Prince Harry, age 12, behind his mother's coffin, watching what the media did to his mother, watching what his father did to his mother and his mother did to his father indeed. So I wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt. And as a journalist, I see how a private life is impossible for all these people. So I thought, I genuinely believed, and I must have been mad, that they were going to go and live a quiet life in North America and he'd maybe become a tree surgeon and maybe she'd become a lawyer and and they'd be happy away from all of this. And I, I realised not for the first time that, that, I, that I've been deceived. And I, and I'm, I, I think what, what I think about Harry and Meghan is I don't care if people are idiots. People can be what they are and, and, and have these absurd houses and, and give self-piteous interviews to, to, to magazines. They can do whatever they want. But what really, really I, I find it very, very difficult to stomach is the way that they are, that they're, they're posturing despite their titles and indeed because of their titles as progressives and political activists, because there are serious feminist activists out there and there are serious anti-racist activists out there and they need space. There is only a certain amount of space in the world and they're taking too much of it up. And I, I just think they're phonies. And I won't stop feeling sorry for them. I believe that they are narcissists. And I suppose a good question, I mean, what I would like to ask if I interviewed both of them is, is what do you want? And I don't think they know what they want. And in the meantime, the rest of us have to tolerate all this terrible noise. And, and the other thing that they do is when a duke and a duchess say that they're, they're picking up progressive causes and they're supporting them. They make those causes look ridiculous. And I don't care if they look ridiculous, but I care if the causes look ridiculous. Freddie, what do you think they want? I think I know, I know what they want. I'm sure Tanya will maybe agree. Uh, well, I'm not sure. She may agree. I think what they want is um, validation and in a sense that the monarchy wronged them and for everyone to see that they were wronged by the British royal family and for everyone to see that the royal family was terribly cruel and probably racist and probably misogynist towards Meghan and treated her terribly and didn't recognise the mental suffering that she was going through. And they want that to be accepted by everybody. And I don't think they'll stop until they get that. Certainly, I don't think Meghan will. So what they want is revenge, really. Revenge on this fusty old institution that they thought they were going to shake up and take over, but eventually found that they had to do all this boring stuff. You know, people say this a lot. They didn't like the sort of more uh, pedestrian parts of being a royal. There are not that many pedestrian parts of being royal, but there are some. <laughs> they want to reinvent the monarchy. They thought they were going to reinvent the monarchy, and they want to be. They want it to be proven that they were right. It's fair to say that Meghan clearly thinks she's got beef with the royal family, but she also seems to think, Tanya, that the, the media are really opposed to her. I mean, do you think she's right in some respects? I mean, are the media out to get her? There's never been a woman who married into the royal family in my lifetime who hasn't been monstered by the British press. That's what we do. And I think what they don't understand is it's, first of all, it's not personal. And I think I wrote about Megan is that they don't love her and they don't hate her either. She's just food. And the thing that I thought was most ridiculous in the Cut article, which I thought was fascinating and far more critical than lots of people thought, is how she said she doesn't read her own press. I, I, I just don't believe that. So, yes, they were terrible to Sarah Ferguson. They were terrible to Diana. They were terrible to Kate. You know, just, 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 it's sort of like a, a constant sort of negging, negging and prodding. And I mean, that is the deal. And that is part of the reason why I, I think they should all just be allowed to go home and we can have a, we can have a republic and the people who we torture can, it can, it can be by choice. 
but that's just the game. You and I, I think Megan had no understanding of it being born and brought up in America, and that that we have this monarchy and this mere sort of a human sacrifice that we throw stuff at. And if they tolerate it in a certain way, then we forgive them and we love them. And I think it's all very sick and I think it's all very toxic. And if she's waiting for an apology for them, you know, for the British press or or kindness or sympathy, she she's she's never gonna get it. Because it's not just one person or just one thing. It's it's, it's millions of pieces of, of, of obsession. And Fred, tell us a bit about what you gleaned about Harry's book, because you mentioned that in the piece and, and that seems to be what's actually really worrying the royals. Well, I didn't I didn't glean a lot that hasn't already been reported. What's clear is Clarence House, the Kate and Williams team are concerned about it. They're more worried about the book, I think, than the Netflix shows or the Spotify podcasts, because they think Harry may have dropped some truth bombs, as they say, that will blow up in the House of Windsor's face. Quite what that means, whether that means he's going to say unpleasant stuff about his father, or perhaps something very damning about his uncle. Andrew, we'll have to wait and see. But the latest word is that the book is going to be pushed on to next year, partly because Harry's worried about the offence it's going to cause. Or perhaps it's more likely, the more likely reason is because Michelle Obama is releasing a book at the same time and nobody wants to clash with her. Freddie, finally, you you hint in your piece that at the very end that perhaps one of the reasons that the Sussexes are starting to come back to the UK is because perhaps some of their Hollywood dreams haven't quite come true. Could you explain to our listeners a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, it's very interesting what Tanya was saying about the sadism of, of, of being a member of the royal family. It's a sadistic thing. I think that Hollywood is also pretty sadistic. Harry and Meghan went there thinking they could sort of establish themselves as a, as a sort of American Americanized bit of the royal family. And I think they've found that it's just as nasty, perhaps even a nastier place. They have some friends, they have a small circle of friends, but the the, the, the bitchy gossip in Hollywood is that the sort of real megastars, the George Clooney's, um, the J-Lo's and so on, maybe not J-Lo, I don't know about J-Lo, Jay-Z, Jay-Z, Jay-Z is what I, sorry, Jay-Z, Jay-Z, those sort of people regard them as, as sort of slight upstarts really, and they're not that impressed by Prince Harry's royal status. They look at Meghan as a sort of actress who who never really got very far as an actress. So they're, they're, they're having quite a tough time establishing themselves as sort of mega A-list stars in Hollywood, like they thought they would. That's the bitchy word from Hollywood. So it's rather sort of sad to think. I mean, one can't feel too sorry for them because they're obviously very rich and privileged still. But it's rather sad to imagine them sort of floating in between the British establishment and Hollywood. And Tanya, just to finish on, I mean, you mentioned earlier the thought you had that Harry might go and work as a tree surgeon. I mean, it sounds a bit from Freddie's piece and from the cut interview as though he's working as a handyman for Meghan. I mean, do you think he's do you think he seems happy over in America? And do you think he's perhaps missing his own family, even if he sort of loathes them? Well, I mean, look, I don't know him, but I he's never looked happy to me. As a child, he after his mum died, he looked haunted. And then I think by his own admission, he had a decade of of, of issues with, with drink and drugs and, and terrible anger. And he's talked about his PTSD. I mean, I personally, I believe, I, I think he's gone a little bit insane since he got married. And I've talked to a psychologist about this. And, and she believes that he has PTSD from everything that happened to his mother. And as soon as he became involved very, very seriously with another woman, and he felt he had to protect her the way he couldn't protect his mother, the PTSD was triggered. And I, I'm, 
quick words around. He, he does not present to me as being very happy. Nobody who sits around doing yoga positions, talking about how free they are, in my experience, is very happy. But as I said before, I'm not sure it is possible to be a member of the royal family and happy. Not anymore. Not, not in this age. Not in the age of the internet and mass media. And one thing I was very curious to ask you about, actually, Freddie, because I really enjoyed your piece, which is, I'm not sure any of this is, is really that new. Haven't the oldest brother and the younger brother, because male primogeniture, winner gets all, always hated each other? You know, maybe this is just a sort of crazy media replaying of it, just a little bit different, but the old story is essentially the same. I think I think you're right. I don't think it's a particularly new story in the sense that they've fallen out for a while. I think there was a, there does seem to have been a phase where they they had good relations, but it's certainly not new in that siblings at some level do always fundamentally hate each other. I think. <laughs> not, speak speak not for yourself. Not to speak, I love my sister very much, yeah. but I mean, I, I think you know the the reason it's it's a, an interesting story. I think is the way that the public react to them. And this sense of grievance in Britain that we felt we'd opened up ourselves to Meghan and then she sort of turned around, slapped us in the face and said we were racist and so on. So I think the the sort of social attitude towards the royals is what I find interesting. I don't find the dynamics of Harry and William's relationship that interesting or, or indeed new. Thank you, Freddie and Tanya. Next, for this week's issue, The Spectator's economics editor, Kate Andrews, takes a closer look at Liz Truss's economic plans with those economists that have advised her campaign. She joins us now with one such economist, Julian Jessup, fellow at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Kate, could you tell our listeners what Trussonomics entails as you see it? So I had a great week speaking to the economists who are closest to her campaign. They're they're not on the outside of the campaign, but they are feeding in. One, of course, is joining us today, Julian Jessup. So, I mean, I'm looking forward to him answering this question. But, you know, I think the biggest takeaway is that there, there are three main parts to her plan. One is to cut taxes immediately. I think there was a feeling, a consensus that the tax burden being as high as it is was a real priority. And as I write, come hell or high deficits, it doesn't really matter. The tax burden has to come down. The the second part of, I think, her, her broad economic strategy is to tackle double-digit inflation. And as I say in the piece, this was one of the questions that I was most interested in, in, in asking the economists around her, because, of course, monetary policy is in the hands of the Bank of England, and nobody, including Liz Truss, is proposing nationalizing the Bank of England. So how do you make central bankers play ball? And, and Julian spoke very well to this point about how the plan essentially is if you do loosen fiscal policy and if you are more liberal with fiscal policy, then the bank has the space in the air to breathe, essentially, to tighten monetary policy further and to potentially raise interest rates, not for the sake of it, but to help tackle inflation. And then the third part is going for growth. And, you know, this is where the laissez-faire attitude of Liz Truss makes it quite difficult to predict what exactly she might do because she's not... She's not especially into terms like industrial strategy. She's not going to point at certain sectors and say, well, you're going to grow and you're not. But the idea is to, again, create the space, ideally with tax cuts, probably some more liberalization when it comes to regulation. 
us to make it easier for, for businesses to operate. But I think one of the interesting things in the piece, and, and Julian can speak to this as well, is the timeline for those things. I think there is real political awareness that if she enters 10 Downing Street next week, she does not have a mandate from the public. The Tory party still does, but she herself does not. And a lot of the Liz Truss agenda, which is quite radical when it comes to pro-growth reforms, especially say around housing and liberalizing the housing system, won't have a mandate. And it is going to take time if she wants to do those things to, to in, encourage the public and indeed the Conservative Party to do them. And that might take more than one manifesto to do. Julian, as mentioned, you are one of these three Trusketeers that Kate has written about this week. Could you give us a bit of insight into, firstly, how involved you've been in in helping Liz Truss plot her economic plan? And secondly, what you see as being the defining characteristics of Trussonomics? Okay, well, well, first of all, I think that was an excellent summary by Kate of of what Trussonomics is about. And uh, in particular, I was pleased it wasn't just about tax cuts. It's about the, the other things that will be happening, particularly on monetary policy and supply side reforms. In terms of my involvement, I'm an independent economist. I, I would basically give advice to anybody who, who asks for it. As it happens, I have been approached by the Trust campaign for, for my views and I'm happily feeding them in. But I don't have a vote in this election. I'm not a member of the of the Conservative Party. And if Rishi Sunak or even the Labour Party ask me for advice, I'm quite happy to, to offer that to them as well. In terms of what happens next, obviously, the plans from the trust camp have been quite limited on detail, and I think that's that's understandable because as yet they don't have the full resources of the you know, the civil service, the treasury, and others to to work out the precise details. But I think we've got a pretty clear idea of what the overall strategy is going to be. So, an emphasis on on tax cuts to support the economy in the short term, but also getting on top of inflation through more credible monetary policy, and above all, that longer term program of supply side reforms, which I think where the where the growth drivers are going to come from. Okay, there's something you mentioned in your piece where you you worry there's a missing part of the equation when it comes to trustonomics, which is reduction in public spending, do you think that there is a risk of gambling too much on growth to make up the cost? So one of the reasons I was interested in in writing this piece and and really getting to the heart of of Truss's economic agenda is because what has been missing for me has been the other side of the equation, which Liz Truss used to always speak about until this campaign, and that was trimming back the size of the state, making smart efficiencies and spending cuts where they needed to take place, and also genuine reform to, to stop the trajectory being that the state has to grow ever larger. And I have to say, I was I was very interested because the economists I was speaking to, including Julian, and, and he addresses this in the piece, Talk about how that narrative has really changed. In the 2010s, it was all about deficit reduction. It was all about getting public spending under control. And and now there is a sense that things have really moved on and that immediately tackling the deficit is not the priority. I felt like I got some interesting answers on this. It's very clear. There's definitely a sense that you can't ignore the debt forever, but that the real goal here is going to be the long-term trajectory of the debt. And that if you can convince markets that in the future, you know, your debt's going to be sustainable and you do have a plan to get it down, then that's what really matters. I suppose the one of the concerns for me, and, and perhaps Julian can speak to this, that I still have, is 
if you say are guaranteed to be in power for the next 10 years, and you know that you can spend a bit more now to get us through what is likely a recession and also a terrible cost of living crisis, and then you can make real reforms to start tackling the debt, that's one thing. But my, my biggest fear still is that the Liz Trust team is going to end up in Downing Street also spending a lot of money. And if Labour or the Lib Dems or some combination of political parties were to find themselves in power in the next few years, it's going to be very difficult for the Conservatives to argue that their spending is out of control. I I fear that if we don't have the timeline that Liz Truss would like to have to tackle some of these things, the takeaway is actually just going to be that more spending is okay, and other parties are going to use that to go further. Gillian, do you think it's fair to say, as, as Kate sort of suggests in the piece, that you're slightly more relaxed about larger deficits and higher public spending than than you once were? I think that's right. I think I've been on a bit of a journey here. If you'd asked me sort of 10 years ago, then I would have been definitely a deficit hawk. You know, the, the absolute priority would be to to get government borrowing down as, as quickly as possible. But I think we've you know, we've learned the lessons from the you know austerity period of the early uh, the early twenty tens that that timing basically is everything, and you know now is not the time to be drastically cutting public spending. Indeed, there are some obvious areas where public spending needs to increase, particularly the spending on benefits on, on the state pension and so on, to to try and keep pace with what's happening to to inflation. In the longer term, though, I think this sort of obsession with annual borrowing never really made a lot of sense anyway. A lot of people here focus on you know, the cash numbers. And it's, it's certainly true that higher inflation might mean in the short term we're, we're spending more in certain areas, including, including debt interest. But what matters is the overall amount of debt compared to the size of the economy. So I think what we'll see perhaps over the next year or so is that Borrowing increases in cash terms, so the sort of headline numbers in terms of billions of pounds will be higher than would otherwise have been. But what really matters is the stock of debt compared to the overall size of the economy. And that actually should be continuing to shrink you know, as the economy gets bigger in, in cash terms as well as in real terms, then that burden of debt actually falls. And I think that a lot of the focus we have at the moment when designing fiscal rules is, is sort of obsessed about the short term and not taking account of those bigger longer term issues. And I frankly think as long as the debt to GDP ratio is under control and ideally falling, then in the short term, we should be willing to let government borrowing take the strain, particularly in the face of what might be a sort of massive economic and social crisis over the winter. And Kate, it's widely expected that if Liz Truss does win next week, that Kwasi Kwarteng, the current business secretary, will be made chancellor. What do we know about his view when it comes to economics? Presumably, he would be broadly in line with some of Truss's ideological ideas. Yes, indeed. They came up together, really, in politics, but also, I think, through their ideological journey. I mean, they were part of the same think tank, Cox is the free enterprise group through the Institute of Economic Affairs, for example. Kwasi Kwarteng has, has always vocally anyway, been pretty free market. However, I I would say that the Boris Johnson years, in the same way I think this has changed for Liz Truss, I think it's changed for Kwasi Kwarteng too. There, There just has become a more relaxed attitude to 
not necessarily the cakeism that Boris Johnson was putting forward, this idea that you really can have everything and there are no consequences attached to it, but that you can be a bit more relaxed about how much you're spending in the short term, arguably for the reasons that Julian's laid out. And I'm, I'm glad that we're like finally digging into them because I think this has been a big gap in, in discussing Liz Truss's economic policies so far. But I think there's definitely a sense that unlike Rishi Sunak to Boris Johnson, who would push back and challenge and act as that counterbalance to the prime minister, Kwarteng is much more likely to go along with Liz Truss's agenda. Now, you can say that perhaps we're overdue that. That's how we're actually going to get substantial change. But as a lot of these figures worsen, especially when it comes to debt interest payments, when it comes to the growing public debt, he's going to have to be able to answer for perhaps a a more relaxed attitude, unlike Rishi Sunak, who I think made very clear whether you agreed with him or not. I think it's very clear in, in the piece for the magazine this week, especially from one of the other economists feeding into the trust campaign, Patrick Midford, that he was he was not happy with Sunak's decisions in the Treasury. He very opposed the tax cut uh, to the tax hikes he brought in. But you you couldn't really say that Rishi Sunak wasn't thinking and challenging the prime minister about what the right choices were. And it's going to be a challenge for Kwarteng to show that he is both working with Liz Trust, but also challenging Liz Trust to make sure they come up with the right policy proposals. And Julian, just to finish on, Kate ends her piece by asking whether Liz Truss's economic agenda can survive the pressures of what this winter has in store. Do you think it can survive the pressures? I certainly hope so. I think what inevitably is going to happen is that things have to be done in stages. So the the immediate priority is to alleviate the cost of living crisis and and prevent people facing a a further catastrophic rise in energy bills in, in January. Now, as it happens, there are some glimmers of hope here. So a lot of the very gloomy forecasts that we've seen over the last few days about energy bills and about headline inflation have assumed that wholesale natural gas prices remain very high. In fact, they, they, they've tumbled in the last few days. And there are plenty of other indicators looking around the world suggesting that global inflation pressures are starting to ease. So I think we, we might be lucky, but governments can't bank on being lucky. Obviously, we, we also need contingency plans in place if if prices remain high or even even rise further. So I think in addition to the obvious short-term things that need to be done through you know, benefit increases and, and, and tax cuts, we also need to have a contingency plan in place for you know, what might happen early in 2023 if prices re- remain high. So they're the, they're the short-term priorities. But then there's a whole medium to, to longer-term agenda as well, including in, in the energy market, by the way. I think we, we need to sort of have a big... Th- sit back and review what's gone wrong in the energy market over the last several years. And uh, I think actually often that's been a case of too much government intervention rather than rather than too little. I think there are lots of serious discussions that need to be had around the, the, you know, the net zero agenda and nuclear and, and, and fracking and so on. And also the way in which energy prices are so closely linked specifically to gas prices now which can distort the market heavily, as we've seen over the last few months. So there are lots of fundamental questions about the energy market, let alone about the broader supply side agenda around planning and housing and and, and Brexit and so on. Thank you, Kate and Gillian. Finally, in the magazine this week, Cosmo Landersman writes about being dropped by more successful friends. He says that novelists are particularly guilty of this. And he joins us now, along with the author Ian Rankin, Cosmo, you say that success kills friendships. How does this happen? Suddenly, without warning, 
one minute you're best of no it actually acts very slowly you're sort of your your good mates your friends you carry on with your creative life and suddenly their creative life their career takes off and slowly you get sort of left behind and and it reaches the point where you're kind of it's not intentional but you become kind of excluded organically is how i would describe it it's never like oh i've got the big deal now goodbye mate it doesn't work <laughs> like that you have to keep up the pretense that you're still friends and equals and you've written 25 novels and and received a knighthood for your services to literature so I think we can call you A. I you meant me. <laughs> Sorry, that's Ian, not you, Cosmo. <laughs> but one I, day, I think, Cosmo, one day. <laughs> I think we can call you a successful novelist, Ian. But have you noticed that your friendships have changed as your career has progressed? I guess there are there are writers who will talk to me now who wouldn't have talked to me twenty or thirty books ago. But I mean, the core of my friends are still the same. I think what Cosmo needs to do is to get out of that literary bubble and start talking to people who write commercial fiction. And you'll find that people who write crime fiction, science fiction, historical romances, whatever, are very approachable. I mean, the people I mostly hang out with are either people I meet in the pub, none of whom are writers, or people I've known since school days or college days. Those are the folk I mostly see. And I only really see literary people when I go to the likes of the Cheltenham Literary Festival or the Edinburgh Book Festival. Well, Cosmo, what do you think of that? Perhaps you're aiming for the wrong kind of writers to be friends with. I've always aimed for the wrong kind of writers to be friends with. But I think that Ian's point where he says that basically he has a whole other crowd that aren't writers, and that makes it very easy. By the way, I don't think this is exclusive to writers. I think it's true of journalists and people, lawyers or businessmen, people in comparable professions. This sort of success gap has an impact on friendships. And you mentioned before that you've noticed sort of successful writers wanting to talk to you more. What what kind of what kind of writers are they? Oh, I mean, uh, suddenly you can have a conversation with Martin Amos or Ian McEwan. Not so much Salman Rushdie. I was in the same room as him once, but uh, very distant from him. But yeah, usually it's backstage in the green room at Hale and Y or somewhere, and you're all milling around. So obviously you sit down and start talking. And sometimes they won't have a clue who you are. Most of them won't have read your books, obviously, if you write crime fiction. But they, they kind of know, they've heard of you. They've heard of you, and that's the difference, is they've heard of you. Most of the, 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 the unknown writers that Cosmo's talking about, when you're not as successful as the successful writers, of course, they've, they're a bit embarrassed because they've probably not read your books. And, and they have no intention of reading your books if you're a less successful writer than them. <laughs> and so there's not as much for you to discuss. And Cosmo, you, you mentioned Salman Rushdie in your piece. I mean, are you, are you keen to be friends with him? He seems quite a serious soul. We have met Salman and I. I did get him to sign my book once, and that was a brief encounter. We've been non-friends ever since. That's, we've had a 30-year <laughs> non-friendship. And Do you think that I'm was very opportunity to... I don't think a Salman and I would get on, actually. But I would like to have my version of a Salman, that I could write pieces about my brave, brilliant friend <laughs> when they're in trouble. Cosmo, may I with... Utmost respect suggests to you that perhaps is there a part of you that is envious then of, of the success? <laughs> I'm not going to hide that. Yes, all writers writers are driven by so, envy and bitterness. But that's no, what I mean no, is that maybe maybe they're not the ones dropping you. Maybe it takes two to tango. If you see what I mean. No, I've never I've never been in a position to drop anyone. No, I'm looking <laughs> forward to that day. Uh, it's not yet. I can tell you. Because <laughs> also your pieces do often talk about people you know and and friends of yours. Does that make it hard to maintain friendships? Or is it is yeah, not a problem? Yeah, it does. There's an embarrassment. It's not just my, my literary friends. I used to have quite a few literary friends. 
And by the way, I think literary people are a little bit different from what Ian does because people, Ian's crowd, the crime fiction people, you know, they're aware that snooty literary types tend to look down on what they do. So they sort of band together. They're brothers in arms in a, in a struggle. Literary people who naturally assume that they are engaged in the most superior medium possible ha have a different attitude. <laughs> but in, I mean, Ian, are there, are there hierarchies that exist even within the crime writing crowd? Are there, are there sort of... No, I mean, there, I think there are hierarchies. I mean, there are, you know, when I go to a, a crime fiction festival, I'll probably have a headline slot where it'll just be me being interviewed by somebody or me on stage talking, pontificating for an hour. Whereas if you're a, if you're a lesser known writer with fewer sales, you might be on a panel with four or five other people you've never met before and you're trying to get a word in edgeways. I mean, I've been there, I've done that in my early days. I was meet in the room. I'd be the kind of third or fourth down the list who was just there for comic improvisation. And then you work your way up and suddenly you're the, you're the kind of star. But you remember where you came from. You know, I mean, I wasn't an overnight success. So, I mean, I do remember the days when I'd go to a signing and there was nobody there. And if one person turned up, they were your new best friend. And you'd probably <laughs> go for a drink with them afterwards, you know. And you're, you don't forget those people. But as a fan, I mean, I, I've, I've written, you know, I've written to Julie Cooper to tell her what a great fan I am of her books. And we became friends that way. She'd never, she didn't know who I was. And, and I, just, I just think that the, the non-literary crowd, perhaps, are a bit more welcoming because they're aware that, as Cosmo said, they are not part of this, this, this glittering array of all the Pulitzers. And, and Ian, from the perspective of someone who has become a very successful novelist, do you start to become wary when you've reached that success that there may be people who, who are trying to become friends with you merely because they want to get some sort of advantage? Is it hard not to become kind of jaded and cynical and, and, and fear of, I suppose, all about Eve style situations? Ah. <laughs> no, well, thank God I've not come across that scenario yet. What you do get is you get sent an awful lot of books by first time novelists. Their publisher is very keen for them to get your name on the cover saying this is the best thing I've read since Erewhon or something. And you can't do it. I mean, I, get, I must get sent well over a, a 100, 200, 300 books a year, mostly from new or newish writers who are all keen to get that imprimatur on the cover. And you just can't do it. And then you feel really bad because I remember the days when I was a young novelist just being published. And I went through the London phone book and actually sent a copy of my novel to Bragg M, who had an address in Hampstead, in the possibility this might be Melvin Bragg, and he might read the book and he might say something nice about it. Of course, I never heard back, whichever Mr. Bragg or Mrs. Bragg or Ms. Bragg. Is. I'm, I'm sure Ian's very welcoming of his old friends, but I bet you somewhere in Ian's past, there's a man he knew that made comparable when they first started writing. He was in a pub today. These days, he goes, oh, I knew Ian Rankin in the old days. He was a lovely bloke before success turned his head. <laughs> they always believe it's be, not because they're boring or whatever. It's because the writer has been perverted by success. Well, the problem these days, Cosmo, those, they, they don't just sit in pubs now. They can actually get on their phone in a pub and, and, and tweet you and let you know how much they hate you. You're uh, bastard. And, and luckily, that doesn't happen very often. Cosmo, you end your piece saying that this would all be good material for a new novel. Do you think this is what you're going to write about next? Uh, I, in journalism, I would never try to write a novel. I don't have that sort of talent. Well, that's a shame you could have sent the transcript to Ian. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I, was, I just want to point this out. I must tell Ian this story. I was once on a tube and there was a row of people actually reading books. And of the, there were four people reading your novels in a row. I thought, what are the odds of four people 
right in front of him. I thought, God, if Ian Rankin was here right now, he'd be over the moon. That's what I, <laughs> I, would, I, I would be over the moon and I wouldn't dare go up to them. Because sometimes you'll go up to them and say, are you enjoying that? And they go, no, I just, I just picked it up. It was sitting on a park bench and I picked it up. It's rubbish. And just to finish on, Ian, do you, are you open to the idea of welcoming Cosmo into your friendship group? <laughs> if Cosmo wants to come to my local pub, I will happily buy him a drink, as long as he doesn't mind hanging out with, with common people. I'm very happy to do that on an occasion. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ian and Cosmo. And that's everything this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, you can pick up a copy of this week's magazine to read all the stories we've discussed and plenty more. I'm Laura Prendergast. And I'm William Moore. And we do hope you'll join us again next week.